Hi, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is a series of programs we're calling Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1, Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'm interviewing some of my fellow VUD jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the radio station. We'll discuss their earliest experiences with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own show currently on WVUD. Today's guest is Doug Barton, longtime station member and currently one of the hosts of The Morning After, our Sunday morning wake-up show. Doug, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about yourself, Jerry? I'm good. I'm good. Good to see you. Thanks for coming down. Uh, glad to. Why don't you briefly describe what your, what your uh, version of The Morning After is? The Morning After is a show that rotates around, what, five DJs, right. and we each have diverse and interesting musical tastes. My show features mostly Americana music, roots music, and particularly the, the more modern derivatives of it. Um, I started off the show this past Sunday with Crooked Sky, a progressive bluegrass band. So I enjoy the, the modern derivatives of traditional American music. Good, good. Tell me, uh, where were you bred and born? I was born in Wilmington. Dad was a DuPonter. A common story so far here on Disc Jockey Confidential. Uh, lived in Fairfax, up north of Wilmington, until eighth grade, and then moved out into the AI DuPont school district and went to high school at AI DuPont. When you were growing up, was there was there music in your home? Was there uh, did anybody play an instrument or? Nobody played an instrument. There was some music. A modest LP collection, um, one of those big console. Piece of furniture thing. Piece of furniture uh, phonograph system with the built-in speakers. Right. Dad had some country music and mom had a few things. But music was a big deal on Plymouth Road in Fairfax in the 1960s. Kids were getting together in each other's the rec rooms in the houses and listening to the monkeys or the Beatles or whatever it was. And I was a little bit young to have been interested in it directly, but a lot of my friends had older siblings who were into the, you know, what was hot and happening in 1965. And when they got their allowance, they'd run out and buy the newest Beatles record or whatever, and the kids would all gather in somebody's rec room and sure. listen, listen to it from beginning to end. Well, that must have been fun. Was the radio on in your house when you were growing up? Was... No, not too much. I got involved with music starting in elementary school, in an elementary school chorus, and met a kid who was also in the chorus who sang in the St. John's Cathedral Men and Boys Choir, a very serious uh, traditional style Episcopal cathedral choir with just in Delaware in the in, at Concord and Market. Okay, it is no oh. longer a going church, right? But at the time, that was a thriving. Uh, church. It was the Cathedral of Delaware, and we had a very serious men and boys choir that was the choir of the church. This was not a special kids' choir, 
but it was a traditional Episcopal men and boys choir where boys sang the soprano and alto parts and men sang the tenor and bass parts. And it was an excellent musical education. A lot of fun to be involved with. Music was fun. I loved the performance style services at an Episcopal cathedral, lots of pomp and circumstance. It was also a rough and tumble operation with a bunch of uh, preteen and teenage boys. Right. Yeah, so right. it was a lot of uh, rough tackle football during breaks ah. <laughs> from rehearsals, that sort of thing. Organ accompaniment or? Yes, fabulous uh, mm-hmm. pipe organ. The choir master was also a spectacular organist. And to sit up in the chancel of St. John's Cathedral with the choir and the organ just filling that uh, stone performance space with a little bit of echo is a really fabulous introduction to music. Where did you go to grade school? I went to Lombardi Elementary School near Fairfax, mm-hmm. and then I went to Springer Junior High School for one year. Then our family moved to Hokassen, and I went to the AI Middle School on Kennett Pike, that old castle-looking school. Oh, yeah, right, um, sure. For eighth grade, and then went to AI DuPont High School which had a fabulous instrumental music and choir program. So I had, uh, I guess in sixth grade, I had picked up the tuba. Mm -hmm. Band director in elementary school just assigned instruments. And (laughs) I got assigned the tuba. Turned out I was a pretty good tuba player after I got going at it. And really enjoyed that through high school and college. I guess that like, part of the decision was, I guess, be, made because you could carry the tuba. <laughs> I'm just guessing, you know, it wasn't assigned to. My parents were disappointed. <laughs> Constantly be hauling a coffin-sized box around yeah. with a tuba in it and a right. sousaphone, the marching mm-hmm. form of it. We all sort of drew the line. I dabbled in string bass a little bit, but that would have been a third large instrument. We had an AMC Gremlin at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just, right. It wasn't right. going to fit. So I, I never really got going on the the string bass, but I became an excellent amateur tuba player. Wow. And that was sixth grade? Sixth grade through uh, undergraduate. Played, at the, played in the Case Western University Band. And then when I transferred back to University of Delaware, played in the University of Delaware Wind Ensemble a knockout group. High school, I decided that as much as I enjoyed tuba, this was probably not an instrument that I was going to continue with throughout my life. There was not going to be much of an opportunity to play tuba Mm -hmm. as an adult. So I decided I would pick up piano. Started taking piano lessons in 10th grade and I play the piano to this day. I'm the keyboard player in a very good uh, amateur rock and roll band called the Bartones. Ah, um, I didn't know that. We'll be playing December 28th at the Italian American Club in Kennett <laughs> at eight o'clock. Come on out. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of stuff do you do? Mostly classic rock and roll. Uh, Tom Petty, Grateful Dead, uh, Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, good. 
Daryl Scott is our favorite obscure artist. He's a country, makes most of his money writing uh, contemporary country songs for the big name folks. Mm -hmm. But he's a fabulous songwriter and has eight or nine albums of really clever, creative stuff that's complicated and fun to play, fun to work out the details. Mm -hmm. So while you're playing too, but let's say, so let's move to high school, I guess. Are you... Are you starting to listen to radio or starting to develop your taste or anything as far as listening? We were, I was a band kid in high school. Mm -hmm. So we were very much into Chicago and uh, Maynard Ferguson. Maynard Ferguson big Mm -hmm. band was still playing and regularly played in this area. Right. Um, I wasn't so much into radio early in high school, but then I started listening to radio out of mostly Philadelphia. WMMR had a hip commercial station back then. Sure. So we're talking now probably 70. 73. Right. Okay, good, good. I graduated high school in 74. So you went out to Case Western right, right after high school? I did. There was a very interesting computer education program for high school students in Delaware at the time. Uh, Some DuPont family money had been gotten together by a University of Delaware electrical engineering professor, and they bought a million dollars worth of computer equipment, and we had teletypes in all of the local high schools connected via telephone connection to this computer. And I got interested in that as well as music. And so when I was ready to go to college or looking around, you know, junior year, I was a very good tuba player and I had this budding interest in uh, computers. And so tuba, I could be a performance major or something like that or computers. And I decided that what I should do was called the tuba player in the Philadelphia Orchestra. There's a tuba player in the Philadelphia Orchestra. A guy's name was Paul Kurzicki at the time. And he very graciously took my call and we talked for a couple of minutes. And he said he wanted to think about, he'd never been approached like this before. Mm-hmm. And he called me back a day or so later and said, you know, come on up to my house uh, and bring your horn and, you know, a couple pieces of music and play for me. And so I did that, went up and played. And he said, Doug, you're pretty good. You know, and here I was, the, the best high school tuba player in Delaware. And he says, you're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, frankly, I don't think you're ever going to be a professional tuba player because there are only about 30 or 40 professional tuba jobs in the entire country. He said, if you go to college as a performance tuba major, what you're likely to wind up as is a high school band director. And if that's where you'd like to end up, that's, you know, a fine and admirable thing to do. Sure. And right about then I was thinking computers. (laughs) (laughs) And Case Western Reserve University was a leading uh, computer school at the time. Sure. We got ex- that's great. He gave you excellent advice. That, he did. 
Blunt advice. That's great. That's what you need. <laughs> yep. Great. So you so you went out there and so boy, computers in the early seventies. I mean, I can't even imagine. So what? I mean, what? Uh, computers in the early seventies. We were in the switchover from mainframes, the big room size computers, mm-hmm. to what were then called mini computers, which were about the size of a refrigerator or maybe two or three refrigerators standing side by side. And mm-hmm. so that's when I, I got into it and got started at Case Western Reserve University. And as I was making my way through my first semester of classes, I'd met a few friends and a couple of us were into getting together and listening to record albums in dorm rooms. And then one of these friends somehow, I think he went to uh, Case Western Reserve University radio station student interest meeting. And he came back and reported to our little group that this place has a massive record collection. It is so cool. WRUW was the radio station. Great call letters. WRUW. <laughs> Um, but they'd been on the air for, I don't know, 10, 15 years and actively buying record albums since the early 60s. So they had a record collection pretty much the size of what we have now in the 1970s. It was staggering. The huge collection of vinyl. Wondered a couple of times whatever happened to that. Right. Um, It's just amazing. But I... Got interested in the radio station at Case Western Reserve. And back then you had to have an FCC third class license if you wanted to be responsible for a transmitter. So I went off and at uh, Christmas break over in 1974, 74, 75 Christmas break, Mm -hmm. went up to Philadelphia and took my FCC third class exam. And a couple of weeks later, they mailed me my... Kind of a dull, burnt, orange-colored license. Probably still have it around somewhere. In an earlier interview, Linda Berryhill brought hers in, and helped. she brought in <laughs> props for the interview, which was interesting. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I and know what you mean. Yes. So I got on. I was on. Uh, went on the air at WRUW. My show was six a.m. to nine a.m. on Sunday morning, and I promptly fell asleep on my. First radio show somebody called in and said there's nothing but the turntable arm ticking at the end oh, of the inner the, the inner groove yeah <laughs> that was the only time i ever did that and then pretty quickly i moved to a more civilized uh time time, time mm-hmm. slot mm-hmm. and so i was on the air at wruw through the end of my sophomore year and was that kind of free form or what was the format of the station or was there a format? Or- uh, it was mostly rock and roll, uh, intelligently chosen. And uh, we had a few specialty shows. You know, there was a folk show and a jazz show, but I would say it was 90% rock and roll. It was a fun place to be on the radio. There were a lot of interesting characters and one time I got to be in on an interview with Proctor and Bergman, the guys from Firesign Theater. Theater. Yeah, sure. Um, the program director had gone to a Proctor and Bergman show 
and he talked to them afterwards and said, you know, hey, would you guys come down to the radio station for an interview? And they said, yeah, we'll do that. Uh, you know, we're going to be in town through, you know, whatever it was, a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And so I was on the air the next day. And the program director called up and said, Proctor and Bergman are going to be down for an interview in about a half an hour. And one of the funniest things I ever saw, they were on the air for about an hour, just live, live interview. I was on the console. The program director was interviewing them, just uh, laughing hysterically. I'd quick called a couple of guys that I knew that were into the Firesign Theater. And right. you've got to get over the radio station right now. I'm thinking as you talk, I, I think. I think they came to the U of D on the same tour. I think I Could saw be. them. I saw them at Smith Hall. Yeah, yeah. The, they were funny. Yeah, they, and just seeing them right there on the other side of the window. Um, and I still remember one of the jokes they told. They said they went to a Jimmy Carter uh, political function, and uh, they were served peanut butter on two-faced Georgia crackers. <laughs> I should explain the Firesign Theater was a was a comedy group on Columbia that uh, put out four or five albums, and they don't were, crush that dwarf. Hand me the pliers. Hand me the pliers, uh, and uh, they were very dense recordings. It was it may have been it, it was it was often, an acquired taste. Often accompanied by <laughs> drug use, I should say, you had to really concentrate on what was going on because. Uh, don't crush that dwarf. I actually did a term paper on don't don't, don't crush that dwarf. <laughs> well, there may have been some drug use by mm-hmm. Mr. Proctor and Bergman in our interview studio that day. <laughs> you know, they also they did a they did a promo for the station here when you started. You, you ever hear uh, mm-hmm. w, WXDR? All the ex doctors listen to WXDR. <laughs> anyway, well, that's interesting. Cool. So, and that was your sophomore year there. Now, uh, were you your radio show? Was it? Uh, uh, what, what did you end up in the afternoon or, or? It was Saturday afternoons, I believe. I happened to be on the air July 4th, 1976, the bicentennial year. Wow. And uh, it was a great time because I asked for requests. You know, let's have some patriotic requests. And of course, nobody called in. <laughs> so <laughs> got back on the mic. So a bunch of communists here. Come on. You're Americans. It's the bicentennial day. Call in with some decent requests. And the phone lines lit up. Oh, cool. Um, all sorts of fun requests. We, of course, finished with Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner, but there were a bunch of other good requests. Sure. But that was the summer of 76, and by then I had decided that Case Western Reserve was not for me. I didn't understand the concept of a graduate research university when I showed up as an undergrad at Case Western Reserve University, and they'd showed me all this fabulous stuff that was going on when I went out there and took my tour. Mm -hmm. But then once I got there, I discovered that none of that stuff was for undergrads. Uh, I see. Case Western Reserve, at least at the time, was almost a purely – purely focused on faculty research and their grad students doing their research. There certainly were undergrads, but there just wasn't anything interesting as far as I was concerned going on for undergrads. Right, right. I still had my connections back at University of Delaware. I mentioned that high school computing program in the state of Delaware. Well, I still knew the people in the electrical engineering department who were running that. 
So I transferred back to University of Delaware and uh, got involved with that, back with that computer program again. And that's how I came to walk into WXDR in the fall of 1976. Okay. And there sat Jim Godwin. Uh, Jimmy, the late Jim Godwin, who was, uh, uh, he was a figure around campus for sure. He had great full head of curly hair, like a white afro. And yep, his uh, nickname was Fuzzy. Fuzzy, right. And uh, <laughs> Quite the character. He was a wirehead or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I mean, he, he knew his stuff. And at the time, WXDR, the uh, predecessor to today's WVUD, had just gone on the air. And there were not nearly enough DJs. So when Jim found out that I already had an FCC license and I already knew how to run a broadcast console, I was on the air in about 36 hours, you know, <laughs> fooling around with demo tapes or any of that sort of thing. <laughs> Thank goodness, another warm body who can run, sure. run the board. <laughs> that's actually that's actually kind of a common story here. A lot of people have told the same. Pat Goodhope had a license. Other people have license, and it's like, hey, tomorrow you're on. You know. <laughs> yep, we need somebody from three to six tomorrow afternoon, <laughs> which is great because we had to have live bodies. You know, one thing that's different now is we have this computer that fills in when nobody's here, and it's just not the same. You know, those days it would be a panic if there was going to be dead air anytime even the middle of the night or something, it's like, we have to fill that slot. Who's, who wants to do 2 a.m.? You know, but anyway, it's a little well, bit that's different. That's what uh, a version, you know, that, that same sort of thing. Um, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. At the time, WXDR was a 100% or near 100% undergraduate run operation. There were no, now we have paid university staff members as general manager and chief engineer. Um, but at the time, right. it was a 100% uh, student operation, which was a lot of fun, <laughs> but also it's just sort of ongoing chaos. And a bunch of us were sitting around at one of the numerous parties, WXDR was at least as much a social organization as it was a radio station. Mm -hmm. There were parties every weekend, potluck dinners on Sunday evenings. Lots of people met their girlfriends and boyfriends and future spouses and whatever at the radio station. Yes. But somebody came up with the idea that while this is fun, doing it with doing WXDR with all students, it's also crazy. Because, yeah, students are irresponsible and they're dropping out or they've got exams they've got to study for. What about if we were to recruit a bunch of community members to get involved with the radio station? I don't remember whose idea that was. I don't think it was mine. I think it was, I mean, Ron Whitehead at some point was, he approached me. That's a, that's a, that's my story. But uh, Ron Whitehead, I think, reached out to uh, Jose Prado and me and BJ, my partner when I started. And uh, anyway, I think I think he was the one, I think it was in, in coordination with the Radiothon at the time. They thought, what can we do different for Radiothon? Let's involve, because we were brought in to do, they said, come on in and do a show. What you, Can you do an oldies, like a black music show? And we said, oh, we'd love to. That's what we do. That was the theory was that this will give a shot of energy into the Radiothon thing. I mean, that's my memory. So many interesting community members 
came out of the woodwork. And we were also looking for people that had interesting record collections because we were still trying to build WXDR's record collection at the time. Uh, that's where we got uh, Michael Foster was part of right. that recruiting program and Neil Payne who started the big band show and Carl Goldstein with the fabulously successful old time country and bluegrass yeah. stuff. We brought in a lot of interesting uh, community members with broader musical tastes than we had. And it really helped to stabilize the, the radio station and start it towards the identity that it has still to this day. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that was a good move. Ron Whitehead, I, he's in our WVUD Hall of Fame. He keyed, I think, to a lot of that stuff. So you, when you started doing a show here, were you doing a rock show? Or, yes. Mm -hmm. Did you go on to do any other kind of shows here? Or WXDR really broadened my uh, understanding of music. I really had not been exposed to much other than classical and rock and roll up till that point. But I got very interested in the acoustic music shows and mm -hmm. uh, the jazz jazz shows. I never did one of those shows full time, but I pretty quickly got to the point where I could sub in on those shows and they influenced my own music collection and what I was listening to at home. It's just a great right. education in the breadth and depth of American music. Yep, sure is. I was I'm, talking about mm -hmm. uh, growing our record collection. Right. And one of the things we really enjoyed doing was we would take several hundred dollars after a Radiothon or after a successful fundraising concert, and we would go up to Third Street Jazz, a knockout used record store on Third Street in Philadelphia. Right. And the grumpy old man who ran the place knew us and gave us 50% off or something like that. And we would come back with, you know, half dozen big milk crates of new record albums and happily wow. grow the collection. Any number of trips to Third Street Jazz. I'm sure, those albums are still right across the hall to this day. Mm -hmm. Linda also held up a meat, the Meatloaf album that she <laughs> had put in the reject pile uh, originally and caught hell from others saying, this is great. It's, you know, you shouldn't throw this out. What are you doing? You know, and... <laughs> I said, Linda, you were ahead of your time, really. But, uh, but anyway. Well, it's been a, um, a wonderful time here at WXDR and WVUD. I've met a bunch of great friends. Met my wife uh, because she was Ann Kate's roommate. Whoa. And Ann Kate's who went on from here to uh, uh, she's professional radio. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to... Bloomberg Financial News. Um, you will occasionally hear Ann Cates. She's still doing uh, national business. financial and right. business news broadcasts. But at the time, Ann was a newscaster at WXDR. She was also a newscaster at uh, WNRK, a little AM radio station. Well, Doug, thanks. It's been great listening to your stories and uh thanks for coming down thanks jerry you've been listening to disc jockey confidential here on wvud 
These shows are part of longer interviews I conducted over the past few years, so some of the times and dates mentioned are not current. I hope to have the complete interviews available as podcasts in the near future. Tune in next Monday at 8.30 a.m. for another edition of Disc Jockey Confidential. Yeah, well, tell us some other uh, XDR or VUD stories. We had a constant problem with cash flow. There was just no money sitting around. We're a little 10-watt radio station. We do our uh, dinky little radiothon once a year. So we had you know, no money but a crying need for at least some money. The university was paying for the electricity in the space, so we didn't have that problem. Right. But we started throwing uh, fundraising concerts. And at the time, uh, George Thurgood had just come back to Newark after recording his first album up in Boston, and mm. it, hadn't, it had flopped completely. There was uh, nothing happening for George Thurgood and the Destroyers, but we knew him because Ron Smith was the connection. I mean, he played with the Destroyers sometimes. Sure, sure. And Originally. we enjoyed what mm-hmm. they were doing. So we asked George and the gang if they would do a fundraising concert for us. And he said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are the only ones playing my record album <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we booked the Destroyers in Bacchus, the old uh, music club in the basement of the Perkins Student Center on Academy Street. Right. And right as that show, I don't know, a week before that show or something, the Philadelphia FM stations picked up the George Thurgood, picked up George's album, started playing it, and we had a mob scene on our hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I don't know, two bucks a head at the mm-hmm. door, and Bacchus holds 300 people, right. and there were 1,000 people there. Mm-hmm. We had no idea. Nobody clued us in. We had to call the university police to mm-hmm. send a couple of people over here and run the rest of these folks off. But mm-hmm. we were stunned. Yeah, we'd we'd hoped to raise a hundred bucks, and we had you know six hundred bucks. Yeah. So yeah. we asked mm-hmm. George, "Hey, uh, do that again?" <laughs> and he said, "Sure, absolutely." Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did it up at the Clayton Hall, the second one, and I don't know. We charged four bucks this time. And the tickets sold out ahead of time, I don't know, 800 seats or something. Uh, right. And, you know, man, we got $3,000 in cash. We're stuffing money in paper bags and running mm-hmm. it back and putting in a locked file drawer in the, at the radio mm-hmm. station. Mm-hmm. And we did one or two more of those. And that's where the the station really came into its own financially. We were able, we were looking to make the transition from mono to stereo, and we had those old uh, mono boards that were just not going to be stereo at all. So we spent a bunch of our money on the Collins broadcast console. It's the first piece of stereo equipment that we had. But George Thurgood and his fundraising concerts were a big deal for a little radio station that was perpetually broke. Right. 
I remember he. I remember somebody always pointing to a board and saying that that board. And by board, that's the radio term here for all the dials that we have in front of us. Uh, there's the George Thurgood Memorial Board right that, there. Absolutely, that yeah. Collins board. I don't know, it's five thousand mm-hmm. bucks or something. We we paid for it with that money out of the Thurgood shows. Yeah, I think he. I think he liked. He liked. He just kind of cast his lot in Newark there in the early days, and uh, the whole town was entertained constantly. I used to own a record store, and we used to, he would come and play free for us. And like, oh boy, you know, we, no advertisement was needed. It was just everybody would find out, and there he was. You know, that so, was so much fun. fun days. He was yes, right before he broke, um, broke out and became a big success. Um, Ron and George did an acoustic show in the common room of one of the Rodney dorms. And uh, I think Jeff Van Tyne and I were there recording it. Maybe we still have that tape somewhere. Who Uh knows? But what a scene. Two of them just sitting Mm -hmm. there on stools. um, Mm -hmm. Ron Smith and George Thurgood Mm -hmm. playing old blues on acoustic guitars and a couple of hundred U of D students mashed into one of those little Rodney common rooms. Oh, that's great. I just I just interviewed Ron. I haven't it hasn't made the air yet, but uh he tells some of those early stories with George. So, so stay tuned to this jockey confidential and you'll hear the whole story. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that was great, great, great stuff. And then uh and you want to talk about the Mid Atlantic Modern Music Institute? Mammy. <laughs> Mid Atlantic Modern Music Institute. Somehow WXDR gets hooked up with a bunch of avant-garde music knuckleheads up in Claymont. These guys had a recording studio. They had the first primitive digital synthesizer I ever saw. They had a couple of nice analog synthesizers. They were into composing avant-garde classic classical music. They were into performance art. Um, they had a completely opposite persona as a punk rock and roll band called Dick Uranus and the All Night Vibrators. Yes. And so that group of knuckleheads and the group of knuckleheads at WXDR hit it off right away. And (laughs) so we collaborated on several fascinating performances. We had the Dick Uranus band in Bacchus for a Halloween concert, a uh, costume show. Mm-hmm. Um, I was running the, the board for that show, and somebody in an outstanding lizard outfit came and sat down next to me for half an hour at the board, and all they did was hiss and stick their long tongue out and wiggle it at me. I, to this day, I have no idea who was in the outstanding lizard outfit. <laughs> and through it all, the, the all-night vibrators are up there wailing away. And at one point, they've just gotten to utter cacophony. And uh, the, the lead singer was reading out of an Army field uh, medical manual on uh, some sort of uh, battlefield medical procedure or something like that and giving a really right. gory reading of it as the band just wails away in the background. Yes. And another program that we collaborated with them on was an avant-garde classical show 
at uh, one of the theaters, Memorial Hall, not Memorial Hall. What's the the, the-, the old theater Mitchell. around the Mitchell, Mitchell. Hall? Mm-hmm. I knew it was one of those M words, mm-hmm. Mitchell Hall. Mm-hmm. And there were three or four very serious uh, classical chamber music, avant-garde performances and, you know, uh, very uh, serious music. And then the last act comes out and it's a beautiful blonde in a long blue dress and she has a cello and a great big uh, plastic uh, vinyl bag with zippers on it. And she lays the bag out on the the floor of the, out on the stage floor, mm-hmm. sets the cello down next to it, opens a great big zipper, and she crawls into the bag. <laughs> Closes the zipper. Nothing happens for 30 seconds or so, but the, the audience is definitely real, starting to realize that the serious part of the show may be over <laughs> at this point. And then... Big zipper on the side of the bag comes, zips up. She opens it from the inside. These were clearly double-sided zippers. Mm-hmm. And she reaches out, gets the cello, pulls it into the bag with her, closes the zipper. Another 30 seconds of nothing happening. Smaller zipper opens, arm comes out, gets the bow, pulls the bow back in. Zipper closes. More silence. Another zipper opens, and she tosses her blonde hair out of the the zipper. It lays there on the stage for eh, 20 seconds, and she pulls it back in and closes the zipper. Then she opens another zipper. Very shapely uh, leg comes out of the back, and... Stays out for a little while, goes back in, closes the zipper. Finally, one last zipper opens, and a bare breast comes out of the bag. Stays there for 15 or 20 seconds. The zipper closes, and uh, then the bow comes back out. Cello comes back out. Finally, the woman comes back out to wild applause. Not a note has been played. Pure <laughs> performance art. Wow. Wonder. I don't think about those guys too often anymore. The Mid-Atlantic Modern Music Institute. But they're, they're still around. Uh, George I'm, Christie uh, uh, I'm glad to hear has that. played in various bands, including <laughs> with my wife, Sheila. And, uh, and Paul Poplowski uh, is, is around, too. So I forget, I forget who was the vocalist there. So they had a record out called Vice Squad Dick. And it was some weird music, as usual, playing, and some, somebody just recites, I'm a vice squad dick. And they just tell some story about, you know, crime on the streets or something. I don't know, whatever, but just. I had a flexi-disc mm-hmm. from them once upon a time that was called Demonstration Dick. <laughs> anyway, whether any of this will make the air or not, I don't know, but it's a good story. Um, all right, well, we have plenty here now. So anything else that you wanted to say? Well, it's been a, um, a wonderful time here at WXDR and WVUD. I've met a bunch of great friends. Met my wife. 
because she was Ann Kate's roommate. Whoa. Ann Kate's who went on from here to uh, Uh, professional radio. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to Bloomberg Financial News, um, you will occasionally hear Ann Kate. She's still doing uh, national financial and business news broadcasts. But at the time, Ann was a newscaster at WXDR. She was also a newscaster at uh, WNRK, a little AM radio station. One of her jobs was to open the mail. In the fall of 1976, she was opening the mail, and she opened something for the sports director that turned out to be strips of tickets to the Phillies' 1980 uh, playoff and World Series home games. So Ann put those in her purse. And (laughs) I saw her late. (laughs) Later in the day, she said, come over. You got to see what I took from the WNRK. <laughs> and when I uh, went over to the to Ann, Ann's apartment, I met Sue, Ann's roommate. And Sue is now my wife. Wow. <laughs> How about that? That's, that's also that's like the second or third crime that's been reported to on this jockey <laughs> confidential. <laughs> well, and I went to the first... Uh, Phillies playoff game with Ann, and we saw Nolan Ryan and Steve Carlton in a pitching duel on a frigid October night. Um, Greg Luzinski won the game with a home run in the bottom of the eighth or some such, mm-hmm. and that was the only time Ann got to use the tickets because the sports director got them replaced. Oh, so oh, oh. this was before the days of uh, barcoded tickets, so Ann had free passes into the games, but she no longer could sit in the seats. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> There's another story that we might not make it to the air, but that's an interesting story anyway. Um, yes, well, uh, people have often decided to end their interview with kind words about WVUD, but it's been, uh, you know, I agree with you that it's been... It's been uh, an well, excellent my- music education mm-hmm. experience. It's mm-hmm. been fun doing all the shows. Um, it's been fun knowing all the people. It's uh, just been a 100% positive part of my life for 40 years. Well, very good. Well, if that's it, then I'm just going to give a formal wrap up here and just say.